Bible worm, Bible worm, reading the Bible with Bible worm. Welcome to Bible Worm, getting to the core of the biblical text. I'm Dr. Robert Williamson, professor of religious studies at Hendricks College and theologian in residence of Canvas Community in Little Rock, Arkansas. And I'm Dr. Amy Robertson, Director of Lifelong Learning and Music at Congregation Or Hadash in Sandy Springs, Georgia. We're here every week to discuss the biblical text, both as biblical scholars and as people of faith, one Jewish, one Christian. This week, we're reading Mark 2, 1 to 22, beginning with the story of a man whose friends dig a hole through the roof so they can lower him down to Jesus. We discuss the relative importance of forgiveness and healing, with this text suggesting that the most urgent matter is being set right with God, whatever the abilities and limitations of our particular bodies might be. We notice, too, that Jesus heals him based on their faith, and we ponder whether our faith, too, can have effects for others, whether our faith in God or our faith in people themselves. And we discuss a series of stories in which Jesus contrasts a new community of radical welcome with an older structure of righteousness, concluding that God values both the old way and the new way, desiring only that each makes space for the other to thrive. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Amy, it's Bible Worm time. It's Bible Worm time. Do do do. It is. <laughs> the do 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 didn't add anything at all. It was so beautiful, and I was like, I wanted to. Oh participate. yeah, it was so beautiful. I wanted to participate, and all I could come up with was do do do. I love that you want to participate. I did. Last night I was playing the drums. I play the drum at Canvas Community, even though I'm not really a drummer. And I was like playing along. I wasn't super paying attention. I was just like holding down my little like boom boom. Pff. <laughs> it's yeah. like a little djembe, like a little hand drum. Uh-huh. And then the, the guy playing the guitar is like, drum break. <laughs> and I was totally oh, unprepared no. for the drum break. So my drum break was like, <laughs> it, was so, it was so embarrassing. <laughs> That's the way that my do 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 was just now. I was like, I wasn't fully prepared, but I wanted weren't to be fully in there. prepared, but that, but it was happening anyway. The yeah. train has left the station. The train yeah. left the station. Off it Good. Goes. Bobby, I would like to claim this first part of our time together each week as my time to ask you personal questions <laughs> that, is such that a I've terrible never idea. asked you before yeah. in front of all these people. That's a terrible idea. No, it's good. Okay, ready? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna start I'm gonna start you off easy. Today's okay. question. What do you do during your commute? What do I do during my commute? That's an interesting question. So at the beginning of the semester, what I was doing was doing Spanish lessons. Do you know Pimsleur is like this little like Mm-mm. language teaching program where it's sort of, it says, you know, you're in a restaurant and you see mm-hmm. somebody and you want to ask them where the bathroom is. And then it gives you like a second to think like, how would you ask them that? And then it tells you how you should have asked them and then you repeat it. Mm, okay. So I do that at the beginning of the semester and I'm very enthusiastic about it. And then along about fall break, then it starts to seem like too much effort to actually learn something during my drive. Mm, so then yes. I listen to music. Okay. And then at some point my ears get tired. Mm-hmm. And so then I just drive in silence. Mm. 
<laughs> and then at the end of the semester. You you weep openly. <laughs> you weep openly. Do you do this thing where you pre-plan, either pre-plan difficult conversations or imagine conversations that you really want to have but know you're never going to about and things that you're some, disgruntled I, about? Sometimes. It's not like my most, most healthy mental state. <laughs> yeah. That's but me I at have, the end of the I've semester. Like on okay, my drive today, I, I, I planned a conversation I'm never going to have. But it was a conversation. Like, I was just trying to work out my feelings about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and then in January, I'll start over with Spanish. My Spanish, <laughs> my Spanish by the way, does not get any better. Like, I get to a certain it's point. Okay. I'm super good up until I forget what it is. Like, ordering plane tickets to go to Bolivia or something. And then I don't know what, how to do anything after that. I love that assortment of items and your, <laughs> your predictable progression through them. Yeah, every I- semester. Like you probably learn more about me in that little answer to that response than you imagine that you might. No, I I love it. Yeah, that's by design. I do have a thirty-five minute commute each way every day. That's long. It's long, but it's also like open road. Like in Atlanta, mm-hmm. you would have a thirty-five minute commute, and you'd only go like five miles. Mm-hmm. I have a thirty-five minute commute, but it's like thirty miles. Mm. And there's something about being on the open road in my Toyota Yaris. <laughs> <laughs> The wind blowing across my bald head. What's wrong with your Yaris that the wind is blowing your head? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I was just doing like an open road thing, but it was funny. Yeah, no, I, I got you. No, I have neither a, a cool car nor any hair for the wind. It's cool. It. It's cool. It's all mm-hmm. good. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now you have to connect the idea of a commute to Mark chapter two. Here's where it is. The Pharisees in this conversation, in this first text, have a little muttering conversation amongst themselves that they never intend to have, but Jesus figures it out. And it's like, what are you talking about? Oh man, wouldn't that be scary if people knew what you were thinking about in the car and then brought it up with you later? Oh my goodness, that would be so <laughs> bad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe that would be healthy. You know, if I'm having this conversation in my car, I probably need to be having it in real life. I'll talk to my therapist about this instead of working it out on Bible Worm. <laughs> <laughs> Only because we have limited time. Otherwise, yeah, this would be time. great. So or today we are in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 22. This year in the narrative lectionary, we have skipped over the end of chapter 1, which is actually kind of an interesting little story about mm-hmm. uh, Jesus casting out demons and healing people. I'm not quite sure. The narrative lectionary has just changed. Uh, it actually changed between... June when I made our schedule and the other day on the Bioform Collaborative, I started talking about the end of Mark 1 and somebody was like, uh, excuse me, uh, this is not one of our texts. <laughs> I was like, you are oh. incorrect about that, sir. And then I then, then I was like, oh no, actually, I am actually, incorrect about that. you are correct. Yeah. So anyway, uh, Jesus has been in the synagogue and he cast, has cast out a unclean spirit. I don't mm-hmm. know if, there, if there's anything really important about that little bit that we missed. What seems important to me is just that, you know, when we last were reading, Jesus hadn't really started his ministry yet. Like he had, you know, picked up some disciples along the way, but he hadn't really done anything. And by the time we get to the beginning of chapter two, he is known as a person who has real power. Yes. That the likes of which have not been seen by the folks in this community. And so that really 
changes changes our setting for chapter two. Yes. So he has been recognized as having authority in his teaching. Uh-huh. He has authority over the unclean spirits. And he has also demonstrated the capacity to heal people with, in the previous chapter, a man with a skin disease. And then we get that line at the very end of chapter one. He remained outside in deserted places, but people came to him from everywhere. So you do really do have this sense that Jesus is trying to sort of navigate outside the main sphere of people. Yeah. And, and yet he just can't get away from it. People are coming to him over yeah. and over. Yeah. So today we're in 2, 1 to 22. It begins with a really interesting little story, I, I think, about a man being brought to Jesus by his friends. So we're in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12 and I am in the Common English Bible. After a few days, Jesus went back to Capernaum, and people heard that he was at home. So many gathered that there was no longer space, not even near the door. Jesus was speaking a word to them. Some people arrived, and four of them were bringing to him a man who was paralyzed. They couldn't carry him through the crowd, so they tore off part of the roof above where Jesus was. When they had made an opening, they lowered the mat on which the paralyzed man was lying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Child, your sins are forgiven. Some legal experts were sitting there, muttering among themselves, Why does he speak this way? He's insulting God. Only the one God can forgive sins. Jesus immediately recognized what they were discussing, and he said to them, Why do you fill your minds with these questions? Which is easier, to say to a paralyzed person, Your sins are forgiven? or to say, get up, take your bed, and walk. But so you will know that the human one has authority on the earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, get up, take your mat, and go home. Jesus raised him up, and right away he picked up his mat and walked out in front of everybody. They were all amazed and praised God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So we were just talking about Jesus's sudden popularity and the people are gathered around so many that you can't even get in. I'm I'm just curious. I mean, maybe we've already talked about this, but why do you think they're there? What do you think the crowd is Mm. up to? That is such an interesting question, you know, and in the story right before this that we didn't read after Jesus heals a man who has leprosy, he tells the man not to go around talking about this yeah. because it seems like this is precisely what he does not yeah. want. And I, so I think that fact sort of colors my understanding of this as like, you don't want this kind of crowd. So, if, I mean, of course you want the good word to spread, but also this seems almost like sort of paparazzi like, like yeah. there's this, this guy who can do miracles. Like he <laughs> you know, and and it we maybe would be different if he had at this point only sort of quote unquote taught with authority. Yeah. But for me, I guess I associate it with like he just healed someone. Like he yeah. is he is like a magician. He is yeah. like he can he has powers and so people are drawn to the fame of that. Is that a really like jaded <laughs> As I'm saying that, <laughs> I'm like that's really I'm not giving the people a lot of credit. So maybe I should be giving them more credit. I think this is going to come up again for us, several texts along the way, especially here in the early part of Mark. 
but I think you're right, is that people are just kind of interested. They're sort of drawn. And I do think part of it is that he teaches with authority. And that's the part that Jesus really seems, in my mind, to care the most about. Yes, I agree. They're also drawn to him because he's been casting out demons. And especially, I think, because he's been healing people. Mm-hmm. And so everybody wants to be around him and just sort of experience this thing. And maybe they don't really know why. They just want the healing. It was interesting to me here because they're all gathered around. And Jesus, it just says Jesus was speaking the word to them. Mm-hmm. And so in the, in the beginning of this text, he seems to just be holding forth. Like he's, he's proclaiming the gospel. He's not actually... Even if they've gathered to be healed, he's not actually seeming to right. be healing anybody. Right, right. So these f- four people come and they can't get in through the crowd. So they go up on the roof and they dig a hole through the roof. Yeah. Can you just talk about, like, what do you think of those four people? First of all, that is really quite a lot of determination, not yes. only that they have carried their friend who seems to be a full-grown person who is completely paralyzed. Like so they right. are they are carrying him. Yes. Um and then they get not only they get themselves on the roof, they get him up on the roof. Yeah. And they and they are able to sort of dig through I think roofs at that time, I mean obviously they weren't the same kind of roofs we have now. And so it was possible to dig through a roof, but certainly not easy. This wasn't like no big deal. Right. And I wonder, Bobby, I feel like you could read their persistence in this as faith or as desperation. Yes. Or some intermingling (laughs) of those two things. But their, their persistence and their, it seems like real commitment to their friend's healing is Mm -hmm. pretty profound. It's pretty profound. I appreciate that sort of, it could be faith. It could be desperation, commitment to their friend. Cause there there really is a sort of mixture of possibilities there. And they're, they're not in my mind really necessarily even distinct from one another. Yeah, I agree. Faith in Jesus and then desperation about other avenues have not worked out. And then they really care about their friend and want their friend to be, healed. Jesus chooses to interpret it as faith in verse Mm -hmm. five, Mm -hmm. when Jesus saw their faith. Mm -hmm. One of the things that's so interesting to me in this text is we don't really have any insight into the man who is unable to walk. We don't know anything about what he's thinking or feeling about, about any of this, do we? No, I had sort of uh, assumed, I guess, that he had given his consent for this activity. Yeah. I guess I don't know that. No, we don't. We don't know anything. Such an interesting text, just in terms of thinking about like. There's always the complication of how do you deal with a miracle text, in a world in which we do not always get the miracles that we seek. Mm. There's the added question here of, does the man actually? want a miracle or have his friends sort of assumed something for him? And how do we perceive like wholeness or mm-hmm. lack of wholeness? Mm-hmm. And is that the same thing or a different thing than the person themselves is experiencing? This text is not 
I don't think answer any of those questions, yeah. but it's sort of an interesting, it raises some questions that I think are worth pondering. Do you have any, any thoughts about any of that? Like, how do we read this? You know, as you were speaking just a minute ago and you were talking about how, you know, Jesus mentions their faith or sort of sees in, yeah, how when Jesus sees their faith, that's how Jesus understands it or how Mark understands it. It occurred to me for the first time that, I mean, I think Jesus probably means faith in Jesus's own capacity to ameliorate this situation. But I also see this sort of like, this faith between friends, like their, their trust and trust, trust in each other and trustworthiness to each other and real, I don't know, real, real commitment to each other's well being. Yeah. Which again, that assumes that the guy who is being carried there wants to be carried there. Yeah. Or at least is willing to give it a try because it's important to his friends or whatever it is. But I don't know. It's interesting to think about what if we read that faith, like the Hebrew word is emunah, and it's it, certainly you can have faith in God, but you also can have faith in your relations with other people. I really like that, Amy. And I think so. the word means at one level, it just means trust. And I like that way of reading it in the, in the Hebrew scriptures oftentimes, or you can think about chesed, steadfast love and kindness, mm-hmm. loyalty. Mm-hmm. You anticipate that between human beings and God, and the result of that is between human beings and other human beings. Mm-hmm. I, I love that way of thinking about it, that Jesus sees their trust in each other or their commitment to each other and also their commitment to Jesus or their belief in yeah. Jesus's capacity, and all of that goes together. Yeah. And it doesn't really tell us which one's more important to Jesus here, whether right. he cares more about that they think really think he can do it or that they're so committed to their friend that they're willing to go to these extremes. I mean, and I know we've talked about this before, but one of the most difficult things about living in the world, living in society with a disability is, is the social implications of that yeah. and the isolation that can come from that. And so to see here that that hasn't happened yeah, is actually pretty beautiful and yeah remarkable in its own I love that, Amy, because we see so many, there's, I was reminding me of that story in John about the person similarly who can't walk, who sits next to the pool Mm -hmm. and every day the pool gets stirred up and there's a miracle that is going to happen for somebody. And he says, no one will ever put me in the pool. Mm. I can't get there until somebody else has already made it in. And so there you have a sense in that text of the isolation of somebody who is experiencing this kind of physical ailment. Mm-hmm. So you're lifting out the like, he's this guy's got four friends who are so committed to him. That's, mm-hmm. that's really lovely. One of the things that's so interesting to me about this text is Jesus's decision. As Mark tells it, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. And so Jesus, it seems to me, decides to do an act of healing for one person mm. based on the faithfulness of four other people. Is that how you read that? that it, um, yes. And yet I had not quite, the way you just phrased it sort of pushed me in a slightly different direction than I had been thinking about it. I've been having a difficult time or really just 
maybe I shouldn't say a difficult time. I think it's important for us to try to tease out here what is the relationship between this conversation about sin and this conversation about a physical ailment and being forgiven sin and being healed of the ailment. Like how are those things yeah. intertwined or not? And I had been trying to make the case in my head that they were actually pretty different, pretty distinct issues in this text. But you've kind of problematized that a little bit for me just by pointing out that he doesn't start out by forgiving all their sins. He forgives the sins of the the person with the physical ailment. Oh, that's interesting because that's not at all what I was trying to do there. But you're, but you're kind of right. There's an implication. There is an implication there. What were you trying to do? <laughs> well, because I, I do want to pursue that question as well. Yeah, at least some yeah. version of it. I mean, to me, like so often the the miracle stories in the New Testament are a person comes to Jesus and they ask for healing. Jesus heals that person and says something like, your faith has made you well. There's a sense in which a person's faithfulness or trust in Jesus results in their healing. Mm-hmm. Here, the man's faithfulness is not at issue. Nothing is said about it at all. It's because you have friends who are faithful to Mm -hmm. you or faithful trusting in Jesus that you'll be healed. So it breaks that sort of connection between a person's faithfulness and their own outcomes. Mm -hmm. And it suggests that it is entirely possible for a person's community Mm -hmm. to have positive effects for them. Mm even if they're not, yeah, I don't know. Like, we don't know that this guy's not fully invested, but it, nothing is said about it. So it seems to be entirely the community's faith that has effect for him. Is it clear-ish in your translation, Bobby, that in verse five, when Jesus, my translation is, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic that the their faith, like whose faith that is, was that the friends who carried him not including the paralytic? It's not 100% clear, but the previous sentence, the subject is the friends. Yes, that's and correct. Then, so You're right. Mm-hmm. The there yeah. referring back, if you sort of take the antecedent, is the friends. I gotcha. Don't mess that up for me, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're right. You're right. You're right. <laughs> so you were raising this issue of sins related to physical ailment, which is clearly somehow playing into this text. Yeah. We do not actually know why the friends lowered the man through the roof, but one I think can safely assume it was because they thought Jesus could make him walk again. Yeah. Jesus instead says, wow, y'all are so faithful and says to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven. So Jesus has in some way, and I don't know exactly what the way is, he's responded to this physical ailment with a forgiveness of sins, but the forgiving of the sins doesn't actually heal the physical ailment because he still can't walk until the end of the story. Right. So I don't know, how do you think about that? Like, what is, why does Jesus respond that way? What does the one thing have to do with the other? Can you help me think about that? So here's how I'm thinking about it. It's complicated. I think it's complicated. I actually think that Jesus is forgiving his sins 
not because he thinks that's what they want and and almost not be almost having nothing to do with the fact that he is paralyzed but more because that is actually the most important thing they think the most important thing is the healing of his body and so that's what has motivated them to come or at least that's how i understand the story and Jesus is saying, that's not the most important thing. Yes. And so I'm going to give you the most important thing. Yes. I mean, it is it is true in the Hebrew Bible that the question of sin and um, physical well-being are intertwined in complicated ways. There are certain kinds of ways that your body might be injured or ways that your body might have been born that preclude participation in certain temple rituals but that does not imply that a sin caused the problem or it does it doesn't it never says that a sin caused the problem right. it just says if you if this is the state of your body you can't be in the temple i don't like that but it is in there and then there are other stories where a sin results in a physical punishment like miriam being struck with a skin disease yes. after she speaks against her brother but i don't think it is clear in the hebrew bible or here what the relationship is between your sort of the the, st- the state of your soul, your sort of like sin and physical ailment, I think they can exist quite apart from each other. And I think in some stories they're intertwined. And I think because when he forgives this guy's when Jesus forgives this guy's sin and he does not get up, to me, that makes it pretty clear that in this story, the sin had nothing to do with what his body could or couldn't do. It was it just, we all have a body and we all sin and we all, you know, like it, they, I see this story as holding those two things apart. I really love, you said so much there that I love, Amy. The, the reason that I asked the question the way that I did is often when I read this text in Christian circles, that's the connection people will make mm-hmm. is well, sin and physical ailment go together. And I think that they're echoing a text in the gospel of John where a person is born unable to see and people say, what is this man? Was this man born blind because of something he did or something his parents did? Mm-hmm. And Jesus says, neither one of those, mm-hmm. but so I could heal him and demonstrate mm-hmm. the power of God. Mm-hmm. But so there does seem to be this sort of possibility in the first century milieu anyway that those things are connected. And a, a lot of Christian readers today, I think, have taken taken that up and sort of read this text that way. But I think you're exactly right here that if, the, if in fact it was simply a matter of the sin is blocking his capacity to walk, then the healing of the, or the forgiving of the sins would lead to the immediate ability to walk. Mm-hmm. And that is not what happens. And I, what I really love is your point that what Jesus is saying is that's not the, like the important thing is the forgiveness of sins. Like that's the good news mm-hmm. of the kingdom of heaven is that the things that you have done are no longer being held against you, anybody for whatever reason. And that's the thing that's urgently important. And then, and then Jesus is going to say, Oh yeah. Okay. Okay. Like I can also make him walk. Right. But it's like a, it's like a second, it's almost like an afterthought for Jesus in the sort of interesting way. Well, I see it as because you can't see when someone's sin has been forgiven. Right. 
there's no way for Jesus to like, if he's trying to make a point to the people that yeah. he has the authority to do this and the people are grumbling about, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, you're not, you can't just say that. Anyone could say your sin's been forgiven. You don't know if it has or not. And so then he does this thing that has a visible, physical manifestation so that at least they can realize like, I'm not just some guy. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm not just saying stuff. Yeah. That's how I read the healing, even though maybe the healing is the thing that really drove them to come. It's not just like the story that you just mentioned from John. The point of the healing is so that Jesus can get people's attention for the real thing. Yeah. Which is not physical. I really love that. And then then it opens this whole window of this man is perfectly whole once his sins have been forgiven, even though... Right. He is not able to walk. And that's what wholeness really looks like. And we can get away from some of the ableism of the text. Mm-hmm. Maybe. Mm-hmm. Your point, I think, is a really interesting one. First of all, the legal experts are saying what Jesus has done by forgiving this man's sins is an insult to God. Mm-hmm. Can you unpack that a little bit? I mean, look, if as far as they could reasonably know at this point in the story, Jesus is a guy. Like, he is a human being, maybe a really wise one, maybe a great teacher. But you, people can't go around forgiving other people's sins. Like, that is not the role of a person. And so it is, that would be blasphemy. Like, if you don't believe that Jesus is in some way divine or that an entirely new system is being introduced here where the, you know, some of the old expectations or rules don't quite apply it 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 it, it is blasphemy like yeah. <laughs> it doesn't sound quite so blasphemous to christian ears i think because the christian understanding has been that god conveyed onto human agents like priests the mm. capacity to extend forgiveness on god's behalf but that's a later development and so yeah. in this in this text you're exactly right the claim to be able to forgive sins here is a claim to some sort of access to divine power that no human being ought to be able to claim to have. Mm-hmm. The priests would not have in the temple would not have been claiming such power, right? That I don't, I, I, I don't think so. Yeah. Not from what I know. No, yeah. they would, they would perform rituals that they understood to help facilitate that process yeah. But they themselves are not making decisions about it. Yeah. I think that's exactly right. So Jesus says, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up, take your bed and walk. Mm. And I've been, I just, I always like, I'm always, I have never satisfied myself with an answer to that question. Which one is easier? Yeah. What do you think? Well... It's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one has evidence of whether they are or not. Anyone can say that. Yeah. Whether it's easier to actually make that so. I mean, we've had Elijah and Elisha who do some pretty miraculous healing things who do not forgive sin. So I guess there's at least some previous example of of a prophet having the capacity to do that, which I guess would imply that the harder thing to actually bring about is the forgiveness of sin. But anyone could say it. 
So the restoration of this person's ability to walk is evidence that Jesus actually has forgiven sins. That's the ultimate point. That's how I understand it, yes. Even though for other people, the whole point, the whole motivation might have been that healing. I think in the end, in the way that it plays out for Jesus or the way Jesus understands what he's doing, that is kind of merely evidence. Like the the healing is sort of a means to an end, the end being people recognize that the sin itself has Yes. That he that he has the power to forgive sin, which ultimately is a more essential and yeah. more fundamental yeah. power, and what people really need. Yeah, yeah. So when Jesus tells the man to get up and take his mat, the man gets up and takes his mat and walks out, and everybody everybody is amazed. Yeah, I don't know that there's any. I mean, you would be. <laughs> yeah. Yes, you would. Is there anything else to say about about that little? No. <laughs> this had never occurred to me before, but the whole reason they had to dig a hole in the roof was because they couldn't get in. Uh-huh. And now he just walks out. Yeah. I picture like now he's like famous. Yeah. So like, you know, the, the people are the crowds are gonna him. part for him. One would Im- could imagine a world in which people are crowded in front of the house and four friends come carrying a person on a mat. And people say, oh, let us get out of the way so yeah, that you that can would be nice. come in and that they don't do that. But now that he's sort of famous. and, and That's right. Which goes back to my sort of paparazzi theory that it is good yeah. in a way that people are there because they are hearing the teaching. But in some ways, it's uh, to a, you know, different degrees. The same thing we're saying about the, the friends who brought him for physical healing. Like the people are drawn there, maybe not for exactly the reason that Jesus wants them to be there but it's still it's still ultimately good that they're there the people get to hear the word that the guy has his sins forgiven and then also regains the ability to walk yeah i just want to come back and touch a point that i made earlier which is that this man's sins have now been forgiven and he has received the capacity to walk again not because of anything he said or did or believed but because of what his friends said and did and believed. And to me, that just seems so important that people's faith can have effect for other people. Yeah. Hi, everyone. It's Bobby here. This month, Bible Worm has a special offer just for you. If you've ever thought about joining our Patreon, now is the time. For the month of January... We're giving all our subscribers access to the full range of Bibleworm features. If you join now at the Bibleworm supporter level, you can get early access to episodes, weekly worship liturgies, and video Bible studies, all for just $4 for the month. If you've ever wanted to try out our Patreon, now's the time. We hope you'll join us. And now, back to this week's episode. So we move on to another loosely connected story, beginning in verse 13. Jesus went out beside the lake again. The whole crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he continued along, he saw Levi, Alphaeus' son, sitting at a kiosk for collecting taxes. Jesus said to him, follow me. Levi got up and followed him. Jesus sat down to eat at Levi's house. Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. Indeed, many of them had become his followers. When some of the legal experts from among the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, 
Why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? When Jesus heard it, he said to them, Healthy people don't need a doctor, but sick people do. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. So I say Levi like the genes. I imagine you say <laughs> Levi like a good Hebrew speaker. Uh, yeah, I guess I would. But here we are. Anyway, but here we'll we are. Just, it's all we'll good. We'll do what we do. It's yeah, good. yeah. So the, the sort of only thing we know about Levi's identity is that he's a tax collector. Mm-hmm. What do we need to know about tax collectors? Man, people do not like them. They do not like they them. They are not popular. What I understand of the the tax collectors in this period of time in the Gospels is that these were not like powerful people in society. The arrangement, as I understood it, was that they agreed to supply the Roman government with a certain amount of taxes that is collected based on the sale of whatever. And then if they collect more than that, they can keep it. So that's how they would make a living. It's sort of like an entrepreneurial job. So you take the Roman tax rate and you mark it up just a little bit. And then you keep the markup. Yeah. So, yeah. So people didn't, I don't know. It's interesting. Like, did they not like them because there was the markup? I mean, everyone has to make money somehow. Did they not like them because they're like working for the man and they didn't like the man? The best equivalent I can think of is sort of like people who work on commission now. Oh, and yeah. sometimes it, you know, you might feel suspicious of a salesperson if you know they're going to make more money based on every sale. Maybe they're not going to be honest with you, but it's not, I don't, it's not quite the same because they're not really selling you anything. Why don't people like tax collectors, Bobby? Because they don't well, like taxes? Because they don't like taxes. What you were saying was reminding me of this new phenomenon at a few of the restaurants in my town where you go through the drive through at the taco place or whatever, and then when you pay, they hand you the little electronic thing that asks for a mm-hmm. tip. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you are a dear and kind, wonderful person, but also all I did was ask you for a taco and you handed me a taco out the window. Like, right. I right. don't know how much extra money this is worth. Right. And so I, so I feel very uncomfortable about like, oh, you're extracting money from me, yeah. but I can't not... Give you you a can't tip. not do it. But at least in that case, you were getting a taco. Like That is true. Otherwise, it would be like you're getting a parking ticket, and now you have to tip the cop who gave yeah. you the ticket. Like That's true. Yeah. it's. I think of tax collectors, and we know you were talking about how the, the way the tax system worked was sort of buying the rights to the road or whatever it is. And then as people travel up and down the road, it's like, a, you, know, it's like you work at a toll booth. Yeah, And then you mark it up again. We don't actually know for sure whether Levi is the person who like owns the toll booth or whether he's like an hourly worker who's just at the toll mm-hmm. booth, like collecting mm-hmm. taxes. We, we don't quite know his identity that way. I think of it sort of like, like he's an IRS agent and you sort of have like, those are just like regular folks doing their job, like making mm-hmm. a living Right. And yet they have a sort of, there's an antagonism about them yeah. in the culture, I assume. Like, I, I mean, yeah. I don't actually think I know an IRS agent, but I would think you probably would not start with that when you were like sitting next to somebody on a plane. Right. In the I same way, I don't, taxes, tell people I'm a, yeah. Yeah, I, mean, I don't tell people I'm a Bible scholar on the plane because that leads to all you sorts of things. You don't want to do that. Things. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Another reason that tax collectors were viewed with some suspicion in Judaism in this period, as I understand it, 
is that uh, tax collectors were working with all kinds of people. They were handling money that had images of Mm. leaders from other regions. They were coming into contact with Gentiles all the time. And so they were viewed as sort of, I don't know, like just like not very observant Mm -hmm. religious people. Mm -hmm. I don't know, not not that they were terrible people, but just they weren't trying very hard from the perspective of the religious center. So there's this sort of purity issue. Like they're coming into contact with Gentiles all the time. And this sort of like, are you really committed to the faith? And then this bigger issue of extracting our money so we can travel up and down the road. Mm. So Jesus walks up to this guy and just says, follow me. And like the disciples we were talking about last week, he just gets up. I mean, as far as we know, he just gets up and goes. Yep. Do you have any thoughts? I mean, we talked about this a little bit last time. It's so interesting the way this is told that Jesus Mm -hmm. has, like, it's this whole speech is follow me. Off they go. I guess one question is why does Jesus pick this Levi? And the other question is why does Levi go with this Jesus? And the text really tells us nothing about either question. I guess I could imagine it in a, in a, I don't know, maybe a couple different ways. One is I think similar to what I, what I said last time when we were talking about the fishermen, like if you, like you have a job and you're getting by and you, you like you have figured out how to reach some point of like relationship to the powers that be so that you can survive and support your family or whatever. But you may, you may also feel like something is really missing in terms of meaningfulness. I mean, especially if Levi is somewhat ostracized from the Jewish community because they think he's a little too scrappy or a little too opportunistic or just kind of like all over the place. And he feels like his economic needs require him to do that. It would, it would be nice to have someone like just offer a different, a different path. Like you're not stuck in this. You might feel stuck in this, but, but follow me again. Like, yeah, it, it is not at all clear what, what Levi thinks he's agreeing to in doing that. Yeah. But it's amazing when someone else opens a different door, how many people will just say, okay, I will, I'll try that. I think that's exactly right. I love that way of thinking about it. And Jesus is reaching out to the people that don't have a lot of offers being made to them, Mm -hmm. I think from other people. And so those who are sort of on the outskirts being invited into a different kind of way of life that has more, I don't know, more value that they can see, more of a purpose. And Jesus has been out teaching beside the lake. And so I'm assuming that Levi has known about that and heard about that and sort of knows maybe a little bit about what Jesus is about. Yeah. It kind of makes me laugh that Jesus is like, follow me. And then the first thing he does is go to Levi's house for supper. Like, follow me. (laughs) Follow me. Where are we going? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, let's follow me to your house for a a nice meal. (laughs) Yeah, that's smart. So Jesus is now in the house of this person who is a tax collector, who is sort of understood as to be somehow not, I mean, he's understood to be in the category of sinner in some way or another. And then we get the language of many tax collectors and sinners were eating with them. So there's like a house full of people who are in some way suspect. Bobby, do you read that to understand that the tax collectors are sinners or that there are tax collectors who are kind of, I don't know, like 
the lower crust of society, whatever that means. And then there are also sinners who are the lower crust of society, but they're I read, I have read that as tax collectors and other sinners. And other sinners. Mm-hmm. I think the Greek is actually open to whichever way you want to put that together. So there's tax collectors and there's sinners. Mm-hmm. Or there's sinners of which tax collector is an exemplar. Yeah. And I tend toward the second one of those. Got it. There is a question about what does that category of sinners entail? It depends a little bit, I think, on how you understand the problem with tax collectors. Yeah. Yeah. If it's about if it's about ritual impurity or about lax following of the Jewish way of life, these could just be a bunch of sort of religiously non-observant people. And there there actually are translators who translate it as tax collectors and non-observant Jews. Hmm. And so the problem then is that they're not taking their religious commitments very seriously. Mm-hmm. There are also interpreters who read it as these are like people who are morally suspect in the society. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. maybe they're sex workers or maybe they're thieves mm-hmm. or things like that. Do you have a way of reading that? Do you think it matters? So I don't like the word sinner because it implies that they they are doing something wrong as opposed yeah. to they are ostracized from society for whatever reason. And I, <laughs> I don't want to push us forward, forward too quickly, but I was wondering as I was reading this text today, why, if the Pharisees are such problematic characters in this story, they are seen as so apart from the quote unquote sinners. If the issue is really wrongdoing versus the issue is as ostracization. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I mean, the question of the Pharisees is an, is an important one. Their objection is simply, he's, he, they see him eating with whatever we mean by sinners and tax mm-hmm. collectors. And mm-hmm. they say, why is he eating with sinners and tax collectors? And so they have some objection for some reason yes. to this meal that is being shared. So you're raising the question of like, what is their objection? No, my question is, okay, I'll say this, but you can disagree with me. It seems like the way the story is told is differentiating between the category of sinners and the category of Pharisees. Yes. But it also seems like it is making the case that really the Pharisees are ultimately doing more harm because they are, they're doing wrong and they're leaders of the people. So- I mean, just according to like the text of the Hebrew Bible, if the leaders of the people are misleading the people, that's actually a much more profound sin than whatever little thing an individual person might be doing in their life. So my question yeah. ultimately is is why Jesus is engaging with the quote-unquote tax collectors and sinners who are not particularly empowered in society and not really engaging with the Pharisees who are empowered in society, Jewish society. And I feel like the answer to that can't just be that he sits with the sinners because it seems like this text sees the Pharisees as sinners. That's such an interesting, I see what you're after. Jesus's answer to your question is healthy people don't need a doctor. Yes. But sick people do. Right. I didn't come to call righteous people, but sinners. 
Right. So the question is, why is Jesus not with the Pharisees? It seems to be because they're healthy and righteous people. Right. Why is he with everybody else? Because they're sick people and sinners who need a doctor. Yes. No, that's, yes, that's right. I guess I just feel some tension between that statement of Jesus's and 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 the role it seems like the Pharisees play in this story. Here's the way I put it together, which I'm not sure is the right way to put it together, is that Jesus actually thinks the Pharisees are good, fine, and upstanding people. And they're doing just fine. They're healthy. They're righteous. They do not need a doctor. His concern is for people who are struggling in the world, whether because they have been ostracized or how they have been treated or because they themselves have done things that are morally problematic. Mm -hmm. And oftentimes those groups are, you know, that the relationship of those categories is complex. Like the canvas community, like those are ostracized people, most of whom have done things that are wrong and like which led to what, I don't know. Right, 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 right. If you follow that line of thinking, then the, the Pharisees problem is that they can't accept that the community ought to embrace people like like tax collectors and sinners. Mm-hmm. They're doing all the right things. They're living their life the right way, except for this one moment, this one issue, which is how big is the embrace mm-hmm. of the kingdom? Mm-hmm. And so if, if they would just come in and eat with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus would be like, yeah, welcome in. Like, this is awesome, I think. Yeah. I don't think Jesus is saying like, I don't have any time for you. Jesus is just saying like, y'all are not my priority, right? Yeah. Like, come on in, like have a sandwich or whatever. So if they, if they could just embrace the sort of openness, that's kind of how I'm reading it. I'm not sure if mm-hmm. I'm addressing what you raised or not addressing it. No, I, th- I think... I think you generally are addressing it. I'm not sure that I'm done with the question, but you yeah. are speaking to it. Yeah. Well, we sort of continue to work with this issue. I think this is the driving issue of the next part of the text as well. And that begins in verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees had a habit of fasting. Some people asked Jesus, why do John's disciples and the Pharisees' disciples fast, but yours don't? Jesus said, the wedding guests can't fast while the groom is with them, can they? As long as they have the groom with them, they can't fast. But the days will come when the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one sews a piece of new unshrunk cloth on old clothes. Otherwise, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and makes a worse tear. No one pours new wine into old leather wineskins. Otherwise, the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine would be lost, and the wineskins destroyed. But new wine is for new wineskins. So here we have another contrast that's being drawn in the first part of this text. This time it's John the Baptist's followers and the Pharisees on one side together against Jesus' disciples on the Mm -hmm. other side. And the issue is about fasting. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you talk to me first just about what you think the significance of fasting is in the first place? Yeah. It well in the in the world of the Hebrew Bible, fasting is associated with a couple things. It could be repentance when you realize you've done something wrong. It could be mourning, a personal mourning or communal mourning. There's a, you know, fast for the destruction of the temple. 
It could be supplication. I really, in my mind, it is sort of a a pretty forceful, maybe that's the wrong word, but like a pretty strong ask (laughs) for the state of things to to change somehow or to express distress about the state of things and call for God's attention to it. Yes. Yeah. So it's really interesting that, that these other disciples are fasting, but Jesus doesn't have his disciples fast. So you've got John the Baptist and the disciples are fasting. So they're engaged in this kind of deep supplication. Jesus and his disciples are not. And the question is, why not? To which Jesus's first answer is, you can't fast while the groom is still at the wedding. Mm-hmm. How do you understand what Jesus has said there? It evokes two different things for me. One is this uh, Jewish teaching that may well, I don't, I don't actually know what period of time it's from, but it's what comes into my head, is that the communal obligation to rejoice with the bride and groom so that however hard times are, whatever you're feeling or struggling with, we celebrate mm. the, the formation of, of family in this way. And, and you're going to have, you need to celebrate. And so even if what you, what you feel is distress and what you feel is more a draw towards fasting, you've got to put that aside for the duration of the wedding. So that's one thing is that sort of obligation. The other is this metaphor that's used in, in various prophets and maybe in Song of Song. Well, anyway, it's used in various places in the Hebrew Bible of Israel as the bride and God as the groom and that they have this sort of longstanding love affair with each other. Mm-hmm. And so the other resonance that it pulls from me is the idea that Jesus is there in the role of the groom to the community and this is the wedding. So, so you need to put aside your supplication and be joyful while, while it lasts. I really love that, Amy, because you get that line in there about the days will come when the groom will be taken away and then you can fast again. And so it really is the sense of like this moment in which Jesus has arrived is the fulfillment of that love affair Mm. in the telling of Mark between God and Israel or between God and humankind, Mm -hmm. however we want to read that. It doesn't mean that the world has changed or that the suffering has gone away or that everything is suddenly set right. Mm -hmm. But in the same way that there's that obligation to celebrate at the wedding, while Jesus is there, it's their obligation to celebrate the, the wedding. Mm-hmm. And when Jesus is crucified and taken away, then we will return to this state of supplication and fasting. Mm-hmm. So that I think we should read the Christian church after the crucifixion as returning again to this mode of supplication. They, they will again look a lot like the Pharisees and John the Baptist disciples did. But in this moment that Jesus has arrived, the kingdom of God is fully realized in this place. And therefore you can't, you can't be mourning. You can't be suppl- uh, engaged in supplication. Yeah. That's, I think that's how I'm, where I'm landing with it. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense to me. And I like how you draw out that it doesn't mean that everything is done. It doesn't mean there's no, you know, it doesn't mean the kingdom has fully arrived and everything has been made right, but you're at the wedding. <laughs> and so then it's a matter of not understanding quite what time it is, right? The, the, 
Jesus's disciples understand that the kingdom has arrived for a moment in the life of Jesus, the Pharisees don't accept that. And so they're still like wishing that that would happen. And Jesus is saying it is happening right in front of you. And so there's, that's the essence of the disagreement. Yeah. Jesus then goes on to give these two little parables or metaphors about old things and new things that I don't, in the way that parables do there, there's so much there. Like it's not, it's not to me at all obvious, like what the takeaway is, although Mm -hmm. there's lots of room for interpretation. The first one, you've got a new patch that has been attached to an old cloak. Yes. And the concern is that it's going to tear away and damage them both. The second one, you have, new wine, which means wine that has not completed the fermentation process, put into an old wine skin that has lost its flexibility. And the Mm -hmm. concern is it's going to burst the wine skin, Mm -hmm. destroy the wine skin and lose the new wine. How do you find your way into those two parables in light of what we've been talking about? My inclination is to jump to what I think they represent, but I think I'm not supposed to do that, right? I mean, you can. (laughs) I do have, I don't have much experience with unfermented wine and old wineskins, but I can tell you if you are trying to attach two pieces of cloth together and one of them has already been through the wash many times and so it's shrunk and one of them has not and so it has not shrunk, this is exactly what happens. When you wash it, the new one shrinks and then it pulls away and and makes the whole situation worse. But it's the second the second part of this that I I feel like is speaking to me a little bit more and I think mm-hmm. you know I was talking before about the Pharisees and like how are we really supposed to understand the Pharisees in this text? And one of the things I have wondered is would it I mean would it have been better? I that does as a silly way to ask the question. But why doesn't Jesus even, it seems like Jesus doesn't even try to persuade the Pharisees. Like he doesn't sit down with the Pharisees and say, I'm going to develop a relationship with you in which I'm going to incrementally lead you to the kind of leadership that I think is most important. And that's going to take trust and that's going to take time. And Jesus, it seems like pretty intentionally does not invest his time there. He just goes straight for he goes, he goes straight for the part of the community that has no power and has kind of been ignored. Yeah. And so I wonder in that way, I don't, I don't read this as saying like Judaism is the old wineskin that can't hold the new teaching, but I do read it a little bit as the, the infrastructure or the current leadership of the Jewish community that Jesus believes that is not, it's not able to incrementally stretch to the point where it's really going to be able to hold this teaching that it will break. And so he hasn't tried to put it in there. He's, he's creating something alongside it sort of. Yeah. How do you read these Bobby? I think that's right. And the question of then, so why does Jesus do that? And so, you know, what, 
in, if we were going to modernize this parable, I want to move away from just thinking about it as Judaism and this new Jesus mm-hmm, Christian mm-hmm, thing, mm-hmm. as you were doing, and to talk about like long-standing religious structures. Yes, and a new thing that is coming into being, which we have just seen appears to be about the radical embrace of outsiders who are in need of something. And here's, I mean, the, the place that I'm landing with it, and I'm not sure if this is right or maybe if, if, even if it's heresy, <laughs> is that along the lines of what Jesus has previously said about the Pharisees don't need a doctor because they're healthy and righteous. I have been reading this as the old structure is working fine for the people that it works for. Yeah. And there are people for whom that structure is not working who need a radical embrace. Yeah. And if Jesus tries to get the long-standing community to embrace the new-standing community, it's going to tear them both up. Because the concern here is not just you know, throw away the old clothes and like get a new garment. It's don't put the patch on because it'll destroy the old. It'll make it, it'll make the old garment worse. Mm-hmm. Mm. And don't put the new wine in the old thing, not just because you'll lose the new wine, but also because you'll burst that wine skin. If you try to mm. make the old thing do the new thing, it's going to damage everything. Mm. So I read this as it is fine for the Pharisees to continue doing what they do. It is fine for old religious structures, for mainline denominational structures that come out of the 1940s to do what they do. And we need something that can embrace people who are getting left out of those structures. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we just need to let each other be. I love that. That there's real, there is care here for both the wine and the wineskin. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I love that. Then the problem with that, the, old religious structure is going to have is that it can't allow that new thing to take shape. It is is very upset about that new thing that is taking shape. Yeah. So it can't leave it alone. But I think that the impulse of this text is like, let's do something new over here. Let the Mm. old thing over there continue to do the good thing that it has been doing. That is so helpful to me to read that, to read these parables alongside the statement that the well have no need of a physician. All right, Amy, this text has many things in it, some of which seem to be related and others maybe which are not. So I'm curious when we think about where do you think this text is touching the ground for our communities today? What are you drawn to? You know, there are a lot of interesting things in this text, but what something something new that popped into my head as we were talking was you know, we mentioned in the beginning this sort of complicated intertwining of uh, physical symptoms or physical ailments and the notion of sin and how it's not exactly clear how they hang together in yeah. in the tradition preceding this text or in some cases, maybe even in this text. But then when we were talking about Levi, the tax collector, I, you also use that phrase for the community that you work with that there is social ostracization and also, many folks have done things that maybe they wish they hadn't or they shouldn't have. And the way those things hang together is really complicated. Like, which one came first? What caused what? I don't know. And they, and, but in, but in both cases, I think 
you can kind of start to start to address it from from any angle <laughs> and it will and it will help so it's interesting to me to look at how how Jesus sort of starts with the unexpected in some ways yeah. like he starts with this person who has a visible physical disability and says we're going to talk about sins being forgiven instead and then in this community of tax collectors and sinners who are expressly being called that it seems like he starts with the social ostracization and says like no I'm going to sit with these folks mm-hmm. and you guys all go do your own thing I think the message I pull from that is just to be aware always of the ways in which things that we have control over and things that we don't have control over are intertwined in really complicated ways. And whenever I have the opportunity to offer any kind of healing on any front, that I don't need to figure out all the pieces of the puzzle and how everything came to be Mm -hmm. as it is, that the act of healing is the act of healing and it is for the good. And I don't need to... I don't need to disentangle how everything came to be as it is. I love that. And it connects in a way that totally surprised me to what I, what I'm taking away from this text, Mm. which is about the more about the second half of the text Mm. and the damaging of the old and trying to embrace the new. Because where I have come down is the message of this text. And I think the message of the Christian gospel is about the radical embrace of those who are on the outside. And so this loving the person who is in front of you, inviting them to eat with you, which is a very intimate. That's very and, intimate. Yes. Yeah. Important act. And not asking these questions about how did it come to be this way? I think that's exactly right. And in the second part of this text, what I'm seeing is Jesus is kind of wanting to acknowledge that not everybody can do that. Mm. Not everybody even necessarily needs to do that. It's just there needs to be space where there is radical embrace. But there seem to be these other forms of legitimately worshiping and following God that Jesus interprets as healthy and righteous and not in need of a doctor. And I have watched in my own communities over the last, ah, it's been going on for so long now, 40 years. It's mostly been about the questions of human sexuality in my own denomination of the Presbyterian Church USA. And now I'm teaching at a United Methodist school and they're going through the same sort of this painful separation where some people are wanting to radically embrace people who have been on the outside And some people are really wanting to resist that embrace. And it feels like putting a a patch on an old cloak and watching it rip Mm. or putting something new Mm. and beautiful into this longstanding container and watching it all erupt. And this text is making me wonder if we could just let each other be. Yeah. Love the person in front of you. Create the community of radical embrace that you feel called to and like, don't mess with people who are trying to do that Mm -hmm. and don't throw stones at people who are not ready to do that. Mm -hmm. The sort of more radical in me wants to say, but everybody needs to be involved in the radical embrace. You know, like it makes me a little sad to say like, no, it's fine. Like if, 
if the structure you've already got is working for you, even though it is excluding some people, like I can let that be. Yeah. That cuts against my yeah. inclinations. Yeah, yeah. But I think that might be what Jesus is after here. Mm. That's really powerful. And really countercultural. <laughs> it is very much so. I'm not even sure I really like it. Yeah, well, but, that's, I feel like that is often for me the sign of a good reading is like, this makes me uncomfortable. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. All right, Amy. Well, next week, we'll see if we can get uncomfortable with a different text. Amazing. Uh, we'll be in a series of parables, largely about seeds, but also about some other stuff in Mark 4, 1 to 34. Sounds good. All right. I'll see you then. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this week's episode of Bible Worm. If you've enjoyed this free podcast, we hope you'll help us keep it going by joining our Patreon for as little as $4 per month. You can also sign up for other goodies like early access, video lectures, weekly liturgies, and more. Visit patreon.com slash biblewormpodcast for details. Bible Worm is produced and edited by Bobby Williamson. Our theme song is sung by Colin Bagby, and our theme music is The World at Large by Dano Songs. Many thanks to all of our Patreon supporters for helping make this podcast possible. Join us again next time when we'll be reading some of Jesus' parables as told in Mark 4, 1-34. Until then, keep on digging.